As a squad veteran, Shane is often called upon to work with new recruits. His approach is tough but effective in teaching rookies how to deal with the daily challenges that a beat cop will face. What's the most important thing in policing? Going home safe. Right, which is what? Officer safety. Right, and whose safety? Mine? Ours. Are you going to look after both of us? Me first, then. Right. Whose safety's next after that? You. After Your partner. Me. My partner. Right, whose safety after that? The public. No. Other officers. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 23, Cop-Free Future. This is the beat that he walks. Two long blocks of Hastings Street in downtown Vancouver. Hold on a second, fellas. Where are you from? Huh? What, originally? Yes, right. Ontario. Correct. Yeah, more How are you subsisting? How are you living while you're out here? With friends. Oh, that's a real good deal. And you too? After 113 years, things might be changing in Vancouver. Mayor Kennedy Stewart has written to the federal government asking for an exemption from Canada's Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. If he gets it, the city may decriminalize simple possession of drugs. I'm not sure what's going to happen. It's hard to imagine the cops actually letting go of their power over drug users. It's hard to imagine they would stop seizing drugs, roughing people up, and doing street checks. Police harassment is like the background noise of being a drug user. It's been the wallpaper in the city for so long. But we thought, in light of this announcement, that we should do an episode about where the Canadian drug war really came from. When and why did it start? And what is it going to take to finally end it? Well, no lighting around here, eh? No, I won't. Well, why are you hanging around here? Well, once in a while. You, you, you promised me you wouldn't come back here again. Listen, I've been away for a long time. Well, no, but I lay off you. I, you're nice and gentle, and you always come back here. Thank you. Look, look at your friends here, too. If you don't hang around the street, let's move out. I don't want to see you back again either, okay? Goodbye. Hey, hey. I'm gonna change the cable one sec. Hey, 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 hey. Okay. Now I think we're good. So, uh, hey, can you introduce yourself with the tape? Yeah, I'm, uh, my name's Lanny Rustworm. I'm a Vancouver historian. Lanny is an old friend of mine. We used to be East Van activists in the same circles going back to the 90s. He knows a lot about the start of the drug war in Vancouver. And so I asked him to meet me and Crackdown producer Alex Kim in an alley just off the 100 block. Um, well, I first got interested in the drug history here when uh, I was just sort of getting into local history. And I read a book called uh, Jailed for Possession by Catherine Carstairs. I'm like, wow, a lot, so much of this is in Vancouver. Right where we're standing is like these couple blocks here is like always been the epicenter of illicit drugs in Canada. At the turn of the century, opium and cocaine were legal. They were in medications you could get at the pharmacy. At the time, 
a bunch of influential white Vancouverites were riding a wave of anti-immigrant backlash. Newspapers were stirring up fears about crime, immorality, and cheap labor. On September 7, 1907, Vancouver's chapter of the Asiatic Exclusion League held a rally at City Hall. Thousands of white people turned out. As speakers addressed the crowd, rioters began rampaging through Chinatown and Japantown, beating residents and breaking windows. In the wake of the racist riot, the federal government dispatched a high-ranking official to Vancouver, Deputy Minister of Labor, William Lyon Mackenzie King. Um, he uh, came to Vancouver after the 1907 race riots here to do an investigation on the riots. And while he was here, he was given a tour um, of the opium dens. But, but, but his concern was, it wasn't that there was opium dens and people were using opium, it's that white women were specifically were using opium. Mackenzie King played into this racist myth popular at the time, that white women were being kidnapped and forced into sexual slavery by non-white drug dealers. Historians have since debunked this idea, calling it a moral panic. Does this world exist where virgin beauty is bartered for opium? So what is that? What is this obsession with white women? Uh, well, it's the idea of fallen women. It was also the, um, just the racism. So if a white woman was associated in any way with a non-white person, she was somehow being victimized by that person. Are these young girls possessing all the joys of exotic ecstasies available to own? Or do they live only in the dreams, the confessions of an opium eater? Mackenzie King wrote a report back to Ottawa. Quote, to be indifferent to the growth of such an evil in Canada would be inconsistent with those principles of morality which ought to govern the conduct of a Christian nation. Lanny, do you want to take us to where the first uh, drug arrest happened in Vancouver? Um, yeah, sure. Let's go down this way. All right. So the very first law here was 1908. And that one was, all it really did was ban the, the retail selling of opium. So there were still the opium factories that were in town. They, they were given until the following January to shut down just so they could get rid of their supplies. So this was called Market Alley, and uh, they often had names for alleys back then, because oftentimes there was like commercial, like retail stores along here that would have been like Chinese laundries and that sort of thing. One article said it was two doors east of the Great Northern Hotel. I've looked on like uh, fire insurance maps, and there were like little houses. So it was probably in a you know, like the basement of a of a house. The first drug arrest happened like just right there. Yeah. Late on the night of September 28, 1908, the cops raided an opium den in this alley. They arrested a Chinese man. One newspaper reported that his name was Chun Yun, but other papers used different names for him. The cops also arrested two young white women from Victoria. Uh, May Doyle and Nell Robertson. Depending on which newspaper article you, you read, they were either like these painted ladies of the, the underworld or they were these women who were sort of captured by these nefarious Chinese opium dealers and forced into the white slave uh, trade. It sounds like they were just young women doing dope to me, but, you know. Yeah, you, you gave us a, a bunch of articles here. Yeah, the headline is, Secrets of a Chinese Den, Startling Revelations in Case of White Woman Found in Opium Joint, joint Covered Doors, That White Women Are Taken into Chinese Opium Dens, and That White Men Who Use Opium Are Used by the wily Chinese in procuring of victims was demonstrated very clearly at the police court this morning. 
Unfortunately, the woman in the case, having the backing of the Chinese in the matter of money, had good counsel and she got off. So this is the, the outcome. So the first guy to get popped under the drug laws, so he got 12 months in jail with hard labor. Chun Yoon was the first person in Canada to go to jail because of the drug war. His arrest was motivated by racist paranoia. This is something many people don't understand about the drug war. People think it's because drugs are bad for you and that there's some kind of concern for the public health. But that's bullshit. It started as an explicitly racist project. In 1922, for instance, the police magistrate and eugenicist Emily Murphy wrote a popular book called The Black Candle. In it, she called for harsher drug laws because she feared that drugs were, quote, bringing about the downfall of the white race. Murphy wrote, quote, one becomes especially disquieted, almost terrified in the face of these things. For it sometimes seems as if the white race lacks both the physical and moral stamina to protect itself. I mean, I didn't really know this until I talked to you about this a couple of years ago, or I guess it was just dawning on me then, that this is where it all starts. Like this exact place that we're in now is where the government first got the idea of outlawing opium, which then led to everything else. So it's like the birth of the drug war. The first arrest was here. So it's the birth of the whole incarceration movement is where this backlash against Chinese immigration came from right here. It's like all the forces that we're still living with 113 years later are all right here. Yeah, absolutely. It sort of started here and it's, hopefully it ends here. I agree with you. You know, it's almost like a historical mandate that we have to end this fucking thing here. There we go. And we're rolling, as they say. Right. So, Frank, thanks for thanks for talking to me today. No problem. This is Frank Critchlow. Frank works in harm reduction in Toronto. He often chairs these meetings I go to, called the People with Lived Experience of Drug Use National Working Group. A few months ago, I asked the group what they wanted to cover, and they said, look at how the drug war in Canada is racist. The war on drugs may have started out of anti-Asian racism in Canada, but it soon took on a profoundly anti-Black character too. Frank knows this all too well. Yeah, well, in the wintertime, around 2.30 in the morning, my, my, I had a, a friend, he said, let's go for a walk. I want, I want, I want, I want a walk. Five minutes walking. Had my dog walking my dog at the same time. One cup pass and stuff. Go in one direction. The other one go in the opposite direction. And before you know it, both of them flip around and stop me and ask me where I'm going. The guy I was walking with, they didn't even they didn't even rub him down. He was a white guy. They didn't even rub him down. And so when you were walking away from that, were you like uh, pissed off, or was it just like, oh, this is this is how it goes, or? No, definitely. You know, you know, you know um, I was I was angry. I wasn't happy because there was no need for it at all. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't stop anybody else, but just you you choose me. And then. What happened after that? Like in the you know in the days and months and years, you were telling me about how once they stop you, they just keep on stopping you. Is that is that what happened to you? Yes, every every time you know I, I went through that for for a number of years. Always they always they would always stop me. How many times do you think they stopped you? They stopped me. Okay, I'll, I'll get stopped maybe 
four or five times in a year. This is systemic and planned. In the 1980s, the RCMP imported an officer training program from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency called Operation Pipeline. It instructed cops to racially profile people on the street in an attempt to catch dealers. For example, the DEA taught officers to look out for people with dreadlocks, whether they were dressed casually or wearing a suit. And to this day, Canadian cops use the drug war as a pretense to stop, arrest, and assault black people at a massively disproportionate rate even though black people don't use drugs any more than white people do. It's everywhere in Canada. It is racism. It's all over. The thing is, what I, what I like about the, about the States as opposed to Canada, racism is blatant and they tell you they do not like you. you know, right away, they'll tell you that. But in, in Canada, you know, it's a game. People play the game that they, they do like you. When, when, when damn well they don't like you. In Canada, we have this kind of more polite, maple syrup-coated racism. That's nice way of putting it. Okay? It's all sugar-coated. Drug user activists know the drug war is brutal, racist, and deadly. We know cops don't make us safe, quite the opposite. That's why activists have pushed for decriminalization and a massive reduction in police budgets for years. Sometimes it felt like it wasn't getting much traction, but this past year, that feeling started to change. I think we get schoolyard talk in there. Let me just uh, see how it sounds. So here. I brought this beverage. Oh. I don't know where your comfort is around consuming beverages. I love, I'm totally comfortable consuming beverages. Great. I'm thirsty just talking about it. Oh man, that's great. It's from the, the chai wagon. Yeah, and yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I love those guys. They just like this little... There was like a competing chai operations across the street from each other at one point during the pandemic, I think. Yeah, the, comp the chai wars of commercial drive. It is so real. So I'll just, I'll start at the beginning and just ask you to introduce yourself for the tape. Sure. So my name is Menakshi Mano and I'm an organizer in Vancouver, um, part of some prison abolition groups and I also work at Pivot Legal Society as the criminalization and policing campaigner. How did you come to do work and spend so much of your life thinking about policing? You know, that's a really very funny question because I want to be clear there are a million other things I would love to be thinking about. I would love to be dreaming and creating and unfortunately this genocidal occupying force takes up space both in my mind and in the country that's currently known as Canada. Minakshi started working as an HIV outreach worker on the downtown east side in 2011. Her job was mainly to get people antiretroviral treatment, but often that was pretty hard because a lot of people with HIV were criminalized and over-policed. Within a week, within like two weeks, within a month, people would be just like cycling in and out of prison. North Fraser, Fraser Regional, Surrey Pretrial, Downtown Eastside, Wally. Maybe a recovery house. It was just the cycle. So I happened to get involved with some folks who were part of a 
radio collective at Co-op Radio and ran a show called Stark Raven. For those of you tuning in, you're listening to Stark Raven on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRL 100.5 FM. On Stark Raven, we take a closer look at prison and the psychiatric survivor movement. And so I became a member of that collective and I just had like more and more exposure to like this abolitionist ethic. I, I know like some of these ideas like sound radical, but I'm like, if you just like live in society, at some point you you have a realization that the things you were told were designed to prevent harm don't actually work. But in a way they're also terrifyingly effective because I think what police and prisons indeed do is perpetuate the notion that they need to exist, that there's no way of existing without them when they have a very short lifespan on what we know as BC, right? 150 years? That's like a sliver of history. My name is Tanya Aganaba. I use the pronouns they, them. She is complicated, but I will answer to that. I am very proud to be organizing with the Defund 604 network, and I also organize with Black Lives Matter Vancouver. Tanya is another one of the people leading the fight to defund the police in Vancouver. They're an activist and a musician. I first got to know Tanya through their music. I was like a teenage runaway and I didn't want to be in my family home at all for a number of reasons. And so I was constantly under surveillance because people were looking for me all the time to bring me back to a situation that I didn't want to go back to. And um, that pattern kind of um, continued as I got older and, you know, was, you know, involved in sex work and, you know, in active addiction. I again, was under surveillance a lot of the time because um, people were trying to find me or people were trying to save me or whatever. And that, that experience, constantly looking over my shoulder, knowing that people were talking to the cops on my behalf or looking for me, that experience too made me like, these people don't help. <laughs> The situation here in Santa Monica, California is very fluid. You can see police here now firing tear gas into the crowd. They are trying to push these folks back. They gathered hours before, furious at the death of 46-year-old George Floyd. When is it really going to change? When is it really going to stop? We're about to lose the front of the precinct if we don't move this crowd out of the front. On May 25th, 2020, Minneapolis police killed George Floyd. Rallies and marches erupted across North America, protesting police killings of unarmed black people. Every day for months, huge numbers took to the streets. Often they were met by SWAT teams, baton charges, and tear gas. And there were more police killings in the US and Canada. Suddenly, Defunding the police jumped into the mainstream, even on AM talk radio. Back to the Mike Smith Show. 
All right, welcome back. Let's go inside the battle over the Vancouver Police Department budget. Garth, let me go to you first. You, you tweeted the other day, dissolve the Vancouver Police Board, defund the Vancouver Police Department. A lot of people have heard this about this movement to defund the police. Can you give me your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I'm part of the Vancouver area network of drug users, and uh, people in that movement have been seeing police in Vancouver uh, budgets increase and increase over the last decade or so as they've purchased you know, armored personnel carriers and acoustic weapons and all this. And we've been calling for defunding for quite a long time, especially if you wrap up the drug war and stop chasing around drug users, decriminalize, that will save the city a lot of money. We also see that carding, you know, IDing people on the street falls disproportionately on black and indigenous people uh, and just the regular amount of hassling, which often results in drugs being seized. Well, that's happened uh, 15,000 times over the last uh, few years. So we see a lot of police expenditure for things that don't really keep us or anybody safe. Okay, Garth Mullen says defund the police. Ralph Kaiser is from the Vancouver Police Department. He is the president of the Vancouver Police Officers Union. Ralph, what do you say? Well, defunding the police. I think defunding the police has a lot of different meanings to different people because on the extreme end, it would be abolishing the police as a whole. And I don't think, obviously, that's going to be something that will work for society as a whole. A couple of things you said to me. One of them was you've never seen the movement to defund the police bring communities together in Vancouver like it is now. Can you tell me about what what you meant there? Yeah, okay. So after the murder of George Floyd um, in 2020, people in our community were obviously outraged by that. But what I saw happen next was a lot of our political leaders do this, this false like equivalency thing where they compare Canada to the US and try to convince people that we don't have the same kind of issues here, that we don't have a racial problem. Mayor Stewart? A lot of the conversations we've been hearing about police reform have been informed by events and systems in American cities. But policing in Canada, and specifically in our city, is very different. It is very well documented and demonstrated that the training and the standards that we have in Canada are very different than the United States. A number of things have developed for me. First of all, there's a deep respect for the police in Vancouver. I, I am discouraged by the, by the current conversation that paints police in an entirely bad light. So the Defund 604 network was kind of born out of this recognition and realization that, yes, the death of George Floyd was absolutely unconscionable and terrifying and awful for me to watch or to hear about or to read about, but we have um, the same, that same flavor here in the VPD. We have countless examples of the police um, being excessively violent, killing people. Get off his neck! Get off my neck! Vancouver police say they were trying to stop the man after a bylaw infraction. One recent report shows that Vancouver police perform so-called street checks disproportionately on black and indigenous people. Black people make up less than 1% of Vancouver's population, but account for 5% of the checks. Indigenous people make up 2% of the population, but are 16% of the street checks. Threw me on the ground, uh, put a knee on my back. Indigenous protesters are condemning the Vancouver police for what they say was brutality. At a Nevertheless, the VPD refuses to see it. 
Police Chief Adam Palmer recently told the Vancouver Sun, quote, I'm not going to be one of those police leaders that's saying there's systemic racism in the VPD because I don't buy it. And actually, I find it offensive to even suggest that. Jameel Moore-Williams is seen in this cell phone video being violently arrested by Vancouver police officers. Because I'm black crossing the street. No, because I'm because you shot him and he was right here. He was lying right here in the ground. A man shot dead in the middle of the road by Vancouver police after they were called to the area for reports of a man acting erratically. So what I was seeing and what really like got me so hyped was people digging into the history of Canadian policing and the history of, of the Vancouver Police Department specifically and unearthing and uncovering stories that have been told many, many times before, but like rediscovering those and recognizing how much of an issue we have here uh, in Canada and how much of an issue uh, we have with the VPD. We're living in a world shaped by decades of austerity, but it hasn't been that way for the cops. Since 2011, the VPD's budget has grown by more than 100 million, and paying for police now makes up over a fifth of the city's total expenditures. The VPD insists they need this money to fight terrorism and to police protests. They also say they're spending more and more time responding to mental health calls. Other service providers weren't providing that element of service to the public. The public has demanded and needs public safety. And some of these things have uh, ultimately been downstreamed into the hands of the police. The VPD really took hold of this deinstitutionalization and they used it to really craft a story around who is in the downtown east side, who is using illicit substances, how they are unmanageable, uncontrollable, unpredictable, and basically the only intervention is foot patrols, constant foot patrols. This is Vince Tao. Vince is a community organizer at Van Du. In January, we marched to the spot where police shot Chester. People carried signs that said, who's next? And drummers from Culture Saves Lives led songs of remembrance. Chester was a Filipino-Canadian construction worker who lived in the same building as Crackdown editorial board member Raya Jean. Raya remembered him as a hard-working guy. No matter how late he was getting in after a long, rainy workday, Raya said he was always quick to smile, laugh, or lend a hand. Police claim they have an important role in mental health in our city, but all too often, this is how it ends up. And that's because cops aren't good at this. This is not their area of expertise. I've seen it. They screech up and jump out, all amped up and ready to go. It just escalates things. 
When I look at what happened to Chester, or Quia Chester, as um, one of my Pinoy friends named him, like Big Brother Chester, I look at that situation and I see that um, they didn't reach for anything but their pistols. There was no attempt to de-escalate. There was just close-range gunshots. The BPD arrived? And did they offer him clothes? Did they offer him help? Without warning, they unloaded five bullets into his chest! They left him to bleed out and die! Naked like an animal in these streets! Jay! And after a minute or more, they finally approached the body! And what did they do? Do you know what they did? They handcuffed his lifeless body! Shame! The Vancouver Police Department told us it would be inappropriate to comment on Chester's death while the Independent Investigation Office of BC carries out an investigation into the incident. The IIO told us that they're looking into whether the VPD use of force against Chester was justifiable, whether they adequately de-escalated, and whether they carried out their duty to save Chester's life after they shot him. But, they said, they cannot comment on the particular facts surrounding the investigation at this time. I thought, okay, the police say he had something in his hands, you know. Well, I've had a lot of people come at me with something in their hands or just be having like some moment or off on one or whatever. And I remember this guy who had an ax and he was trying to chop me and chop other people. And I calmed this guy down and got the ax off him and nobody died. And I know people around Van Du have done that with way more than me, have done that with everything. Like, I think our Laura is practically an expert at this, you know, like she just, if she had been empowered to respond to Chester, right. if the people in the building who have done that before were, mm. but that has been taken away from us. I feel like we have these capacities, you know. Today, we honor this man's life and his death. He will not be disappeared. He will not be forgotten. We will speak his name, Justice for Chester! 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 Another reason the cops say they need so much tax money is to police the drug war. 
but we know that police actually make the overdose crisis worse. Cops chasing dealers makes them turn to more and more potent analogs that are easier to smuggle. Cops chasing drug users forces us to rush our hit or to use a loan. All of this means more death. When the city started talking about decriminalizing possession, we insisted that all of this had to change, that the police had to stand down and their budgets had to shrink. But in Vancouver, the cops have staked out a role for themselves in whatever decriminalization model emerges. They're appointing themselves gatekeepers of the new regime. What's interesting is the Vancouver Police Department has not for years targeted the drug user. Uh, we've, we've targeted and specific <laughs> drug dealers and drug suppliers. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if Garth's aware, but we're in the midst of an opiate crisis. Uh, and people are dying because the drugs that are being sold on the street. Okay, Garth Mullins. So Ralph, what happens is, is you guys seize the drugs that we have in our possession. Sometimes we don't get charged. Sometimes our charges get boosted to uh, possession with intent to traffic. And when those drugs get seized, what do you think happens? People have to make up the shortfall, right? So this isn't a solution. If we actually have real decriminalization, if we have real changes in the laws, that'll save people a lot of money. You guys won't have to park your cruisers outside of safe injection sites anymore. You won't have to harass, stop and search drug users. Get to save all this money. Uh, people can okay. get treatment, can get safe supply. We can go a completely different route, and that will be able to be a great budget reduction. Okay, guys, let me just jump in there. I know Ralph Kaiser probably really wants to respond to that, but we have to take a commercial break, so let's take it right now. Oh, I'm Franklin Graham. Do you feel that your life is in a downward spiral with no hope? Have you ever thought about, boy, if I could just somehow reboot my life? I, uh, when we talked before, and you sort of cautioned specifically about the VPD, they're very adaptable. You know, they can encounter any sort of mushy liberal middle idea and like water like come around them and reform on the other side like reconstitute their power in whatever new regime you know police are kind of immersed in many of the same spheres that we are in they have access to a lot of the same media social media they see ideas that take root right um they see how ideas like equity diversity and inclusion look good and people seem to like them. So what if we had a more diverse police force? Maybe that would be a nice thing. Like, maybe it would be nice for me as a South Asian to have a fellow South Asian violate my rights. Redirecting police funding is not easy. In Vancouver, an elected city council makes the police budgets. But if the cops don't like it, they and their pals on the unelected police board can appeal the budget decision to an unelected senior bureaucrat in the provincial government. And that senior bureaucrat, he's a former Mountie. Ultimately, it's the cops who decide police budgets in BC. Um, so, uh, Madam Clerk, we are ready to begin listening to the speakers on this item. Last year, City Council heard two related motions. One was to end police street checks or carding. The other was to get the cops to disclose how much they spend policing drug users, sex workers, and poor people. Yes, wonderful that there's this motion that recognizes that human beings are human beings and they need help and we need to decriminalize poverty, but like, what are you going to do about it? Mayor Stewart? 
sorry, I was just on mute there. I just wanted to thank the speaker so much for uh, coming this evening to speak to this. Uh, my uh, my question is, what what drew you here today? What what uh, reforms are you looking for in terms of policing in Vancouver? Well, I think that this motion, which I'm speaking in favor of, basically authorizes the writing of a letter. It was like three or four days. And then, hearings for three or four days on oh, Zoom, yeah. right? It was three or four days of hearings. Um, Chief Don Tom, Vice President of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, uh, here to speak in support of uh, ending street checks. Yes, um, hello. Yes, we can, we, yes, we can hear you. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Magabo. Thank you for allowing me to speak in favor of the motion to ban street checks in the city of Vancouver. Uh, like, I used to go to City Hall sometimes to sign up. You know, you sign up like any member of the public. You get on a list. Sometimes it's hundreds long or whatever. Oh, yeah. It goes on for hours, and you get your five minutes, and they get to, like, just snore through what you're saying or whatever. Type um, through, go to the bathroom, eat snacks. Yeah. <laughs> whatever they want, especially in the age of COVID. It's like they're definitely not listening. <laughs> and I kind of, like, really went off that. But I, I really heard the call mm. last year, and so I signed up for some of those. It's a huge moment for the council and also for the police board. Because these bodies, the way I see it now, are in a fight for their legitimacy. And yeah. I remember the day that you're talking about, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know if it was awesome for the council, but it was awesome for us. It was awesome for me anyway. And so a letter to nicely ask uh, out of touch and undemocratic institution like the Vancouver Police Board to please nicely, respectfully ask a police chief and a police to do something, to stop doing something that's racist, arbitrary and illegal. Man, that's on the edge of, of so insufficient as to fall outside of history. Thank you very much okay, for hearing me out tonight. Right. And you do have questions um Mayor Stewart. Uh, hi, it's Tanya Aganaba. Thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to speak. This is not enough. Going against this would be a betrayal of our, our values as a community and would show that, once again, Black and Indigenous and other people of color, their experience on this land will never come before the comfort of the state. And I can't believe that that's who we are and who we want to be. Tanya spoke, and Minakshi, and a bunch of other people you've heard on Crackdown, and lots of people I don't know. But we're all saying the same thing, all of us building on each other's points. And as I listened to all these different voices coming together, it struck me, this movement is the most serious challenge to policing in a generation. That's what I was talking about when I said, like, we galvanized around this moment. Like, people were showing up for each other, like messaging each other. We were tweeting at each other after people were talking. We're like, well, I love you so much. You're so brilliant. Thanks for spitting those hot disses at the counselors and stuff like that. You and were out there calling people doves. I remember yeah. that. <laughs> I was. That's my, that's my trademark. I know. It's lovely. Yeah. I felt honored when you called me a dove on Twitter. Yo, that's so sweet. I want to end with a quote. A prerequisite to seeking any social change is the naming of it. Even though the goal we seek may be far away, unless we name it and fight for it today, it will never come. Abolishing the police may sound wild, but that's the dream we have. So help help. Thanks.
I mean, we were we were talking on the way here before I turned on the mic about how um, we kind of look to ourselves, to our communities, not to uh, the elected officials to make history. Yeah. And here we are going to their house, and an emotion that is doesn't have teeth yeah. and all that. But it, but. I was looking at us. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking about them at all. I was like, this is like a little organizing moment for us. 100%. And one of the biggest things I've taken from this is that I actually have way more power than I thought I did. Our community is so well-resourced. We don't always see it. We don't always recognize it. And the people in power definitely don't recognize our power. But at this moment and ones like it are the perfect opportunity for us to be like, oh, damn, this is my family around me. Like, I got it. I'm good. <laughs> well, let's get out of the way a little bit for these folks. Hi there. Hi. Hey. <laughs> nice boots. <laughs> Policing in North America was born in slave patrols, strike breaking, and driving indigenous peoples off their lands. White supremacy is baked into the DNA of policing here. Cops resist reform at every turn. The blue wall is real. While those city council motions may have passed, they had no teeth, so nothing changed. But there's more energy around ending the drug war and defunding the police in Vancouver than ever before. Now we need to channel that into real change. We need to cut off funds that the cops use to police drug users, sex workers, and poor people. We need to cut off funds that cops use to target black and indigenous communities. And we've got to start building a cop-free future. Crackdown is produced in the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I'd like to say goodbye to Kaya Ashley. Kaya passed away last week. Can you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Kaya Ashley, a drug war survivor. <laughs> Excellent. Where are you from? I'm from Abbotsford, BC. What's Abbotsford like? Uh, I'll give it to you in the short term. It's Stabbotsford, uh, and that's to your heart and to your body. Oh, wow. <laughs> Kaya had this loud voice. It was perfect for cutting through the din of a chaotic meeting or a big demonstration. It was perfect for making our cause heard. I remember when I interviewed her a couple of years ago, the level meter on my recorder pinged into the red and had to turn down the gain. I love that voice. Goodbye, Kaya. I'd like to thank everyone involved with the People with Lived Experience of Drug Use National Working Group of the Canadian Research Initiative in Substance Misuse, or CRISM. And this includes Frank Critchlow, Michael Nurse, Jade Boyd, Alex Betzos, and Karen Turner. A few hours before I recorded this, I got the news of Karen's death. I don't know any details yet, and I don't really know what to say, just that Karen was a great activist and a lovely person. She contributed to this episode. Thank you to Tanya Aganaba for letting us use their songs Make This House a Home and CC, which you're hearing right now. Special thanks as well to Ken Kwong. And also, last month, a couple of the production team got COVID. See, the producers and I have not yet gotten the vaccine, but I'm relieved to say that everyone's pretty much recovered. 
further readings and there's more links at patreon.com slash crackdown pod while there consider giving us a donation it helps the editorial board is simona marsh shelda castor greg fess jeff loudon dean wilson al fowler laura shaver raya jean and rest in peace dave murray and sharice kiwatton Today's episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Lisa Hale, Alex Kim, Ryan McNeil, and me, Garth Mullins. Funding came from Chrism. Original score for today's episode was written and performed by James Ash, Sam Fenn, Kai Paulson, and I. Thanks for listening. Be safe and keep six. <laughs> <laughs>